So there was a, a LifeWay uh, research article written called 11 Things You Think Are in the Bible But Actually Are Not. Uh, and what this article goes over is what many, uh, what many Americans believe to be in Scripture, but after closer in inspection, when you read Genesis through Revelation, you find out these are not verses at all in the Bible. These are not phrases that you will find at all in the Bible. One of them uh, is kind of funny and interesting. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Who's heard that? That's a very common expression. I think more people have heard that, but it's a very common expression that you hear. Now, I'm not denying that this is a great phrase to get your husband and kids to clean up the house. I'm not denying that, but it appears nowhere in the Bible. And another really funny one that I hear people say this, this is pretty, pretty high up there, I would say, all the time. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. So where does that often quoted line come from? Well, it comes from the great, renowned, and uh, well-known theologian and philosopher, Mike Dicka. Dicka, as Chris Farley would say. The Bears, right? And he was a coach of the Bears, and I, I, he, after getting fired from the Chicago Bears, he had a little bit of a temper. He would scream, and he was very intense. Dicka was uh, at a press conference there, and, and he was very upset, and he says, the scripture tells us, this Two shall pass after getting fired. And where does he get this phrase from? Like, where does, where does, where does uh, Dick God get his magic thoughts from? Well, he actually misunderstood he, the King James, in the King James translation of the Bible, it came to pass. So Dick God said, okay, this too shall pass. He just conflated it in his mind. So the last one I want to look at here, and this one is actually seriously the most harmful out of all the often repeated phrases, but it is, God helps those who help themselves. I'm just curious for a show of hands. Who's heard that before? God helps those. Okay, so you guys have heard it. Now, this, this phrase, I will say, is probably the most destructive because it goes against the very idea of the gospel. It goes against the very idea of grace. And it is actually, believe it or not, one of the most believed lines to be in the Bible itself. It is a very common belief in the United States that this phrase not only occurs in the Bible, but specifically... In the Ten Commandments. Shows you how well uh, Americans know the Ten Commandments, huh? What is stunning in a Barna, uh, Barna poll, 82% of Americans believe, 82% believe this is to be in the Bible. That is very high. And that's why we do verse-by-verse -verse preaching here rather than just winging it every Sunday. I try to go through the Bible because Americans do not know Scripture. They do not know the Bible. They don't know what it says. So despite not appearing in the Bible, this phrase is topped in, as one of the most well-known Bible verses. Only it's not a Bible verse. 5% of American teenagers say that they believe that this is a central message of the Bible. It's central. And so 82% of Americans believe this. And it's not surprising because 82% of Americans also believe, or, um, uh, well, actually 52% 52, 52 of Americans who describe themselves as Christians properly, they say they, were, they would call themselves a Christian. 52% of those American Christians would say that eternal salvation, eternal life can be gained by being or doing good. You can, you can be saved and have eternal life by doing and being good. And uh, this is kind of shocking and somewhat contradictory because at the same time, Americans also want to believe in grace also. Everyone wants to believe in grace. 
No one wants to say that salvation, you're saved, that that's an entirely ungracious thing. I mean, we, we as Americans, we really believe in grace. We have the song American Beautiful, right? We sing in school, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. It's a very popular song. I, in fact, I'm going to be honest with you. I have never met a person who has denied that salvation in some sense is by the grace of God. Every works-based group in the world that claims to follow the Bible that I've encountered affirms the reality of God's grace. I mean, even pop star Katy Perry believes and she has a whole song in the grace of God. I mean, you know, it's one of her better ones, but it's still, I mean, even she, even she believes in the grace of God. So if Katy Perry believes it, you know, you got to, it's pretty high up there. Just saying. So if your salvation is not of grace, then every group in the world is going to say, no, 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 it, it, it has, anybody who claims to have a relationship with the Bible will want to distance themselves when you say, yeah, salvation is not by grace. They'll say, no, it is by grace in some sense. I don't know anybody who would call themselves a Christian, no matter what religion, what background, what denomination, whatever it is, would say it's not in some sense by grace. And yet, you have this phrase, 82% of Americans, 52% of American Christians, and just Americans in general, would say that in order to get eternal life, you must work hard, you must strive. So then you're like, okay, America, which one is it? Is it salvation by grace or is it by works, right? Uh, which one is it? And when you talk to these groups, what they're going to say is that it's both. That's what they'll say. So what many people do is they define grace to include or smuggle in works. And this is how Americans like it. We like to have our cake and eat it too. And they can say that they're saved by grace, but they can still, you know, you can still strive and try to get your salvation. People who hold this view will uh, say things like, try your best and God will make up the rest. Or things like, well, we are saved by grace. That is after all, after all that we can do. They'll say things, well, God will give you grace once you've repented perfectly, you've denied yourself of all ungodliness, of every sin, then God's going to give you grace. Then you've got it, right? So when people say grace, what they do is they include some condition of good works. And this is one of the greatest confusions inside of the church and outside of the church. And what we're going to see this morning is people do not have the proper definition of grace according to Scripture. And we'll see this in Romans 11, 1 through 6. Paul is going to be like... Um, that guy from the Princess Bride, you keep on using that word, but I do not think you know what it means. <laughs> Paul's going to be that guy this morning as we look at our verse-by-verse -verse study. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's point here is that God has not totally rejected his people the Jewish people. Paul's like, well, look at me. I'm an apostle. I'm, you know, I'm kind of up there. I'm an apostle. I spread the gospel to the Gentiles and I am an Israelite. I am a Jewish Christian. So God has saved Paul and other first century Jews. And so God has not completely rejected his people. That's his first point in this first section. What we're going to see as we kind of go through Romans 11 is that God not only has not completely rejected his people, the, the Jewish people, but he has not finally rejected, rejected the people. There is a future for Israel. Romans 11, 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? 
So Paul's whole point here is that he's not going to reject Israel as a whole collectively at all because he has loved them from all eternity past. He has loved them beforehand. That's what foreknowledge means. It means love. It, it means an intimate knowledge and love beforehand. And the Bible talks about this. Jeremiah it says he knew him before he was in the womb. That means he loved him before he was in the womb. When you read the Adam and Eve uh, narrative, when they become intimate, it says Adam knew Eve. So it doesn't refer just to intellectual facts. I mean, God knows everybody before they're born. God knows everything in the future. So he knows everything. But this refers to an intimate knowledge that God has, a loving knowledge before people are born. And he says he has this for Israel. And he, that's why he's not completely rejected him, nor will he finally reject them. As we're going to see at the very end of Romans 11, 25 to 26, it says when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, all Israel will be saved. So we're going to see what Paul means by that as we kind of go through in our verse-by-verse -verse study and what he's talking about Israel here. Verse 2 and 3 and following. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah's like, oh my goodness, they're going to kill me, these worshipers of Baal. I'm, the, the whole Israelite church is totally in trouble. It's all going to end. It's all going to be over. But what does God say in reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men, and back then that's a lot of people. Today the population is much larger. Myself, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too at the present time there is a remnant of Jewish people chosen by grace. He has not completely rejected them. I think the point here is very interesting. He's saying, hey, Paul, you know, he's saying, Paul's saying, hey, look back to the Israelite church. They thought there was nobody saved in, Elijah, in Elijah's time, but there was. There was a remnant saved. Even though things did not appear externally magnificent and glorious, you know, with uh, big, big, huge statues and, and big, huge, uh, you know, pomp and circumstance to Yahweh, there was still... There, there was still a, a, a remnant that worshipped him. I shouldn't say statues, I just meant that there wasn't a good a public representation. And so God was still saving his, his people in the church, even though it didn't appear like it when you looked around and, uh, in, that, in that time in ancient Israel. And I think this is a good reminder to us as Christians, even though we might feel like the world is falling apart, even though we might feel like the church is falling apart, God is still working. God is still saving people, those who have faith in Christ. God has, has his people and he will save them. And so we shouldn't be overly alarmist and doomsday prophets like Elijah was, that every little thing that goes wrong in the church, we have to be like chicken little, and then he would say, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, this didn't happen, the whole church is just going to disappear, it's going to go away. No, God is always working, he will always preserve his, his church. What it says in Matthew 16 is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So God is not going to let his church go to nothing. He will always preserve it, he will always grow it. Matthew 13 says, it starts off like a little tiny mustard seed, and grows to be the biggest garden plant bigger than all the other branches in the garden. And so Christianity continues to grow. Now you look around in the United States, you may not feel like that at times, but I hate to say it, we don't have the largest population here. We really do not. If you go to China and India, they have the underground church there in China especially. That is growing leaps and bounds. In fact, they are estimating it's growing so fast that Christianity is in these, in these more persecuted nations. It's growing much faster than the human population. 
And so God is still working. And even though the church may not be externally uh, magnificent and glorious in terms of politics or whatever it is, however you would envision it, not that it should be that way, but even whatever you envision it is, it doesn't matter. God works with the weakest things. He doesn't work always in this majestic way. He has power in weakness. And so God grows his church in the midst of persecution and suffering. So we shouldn't assume that God's not always working and be chicken little. Romans 11.6 But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. No longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So according to Paul here, it fundamentally matters how you define grace. It matters how you think about grace. You cannot give any definition of grace that you like and just run with it. It's not like a Mr. Potato Head or a buffet. You just kind of put on whatever you want on your plate, put whatever you want on Mr. Potato Head. No, there is an objective definition in God's word as to what grace is. And this is very important in the case of grace because it is one of the most frequent Greek words, the Greek word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. It is used over 95 times in Paul's writings. It's, very, it's so predominant, it's impossible to miss. It's in everything that Paul writes. That's why everybody wants to affirm grace on some level. But the basic meaning of this term, people will say is unmerited favor, you know, just that something you don't earn, but God gives you favor. But if you look at the context of sin in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, in those chapters, many scholars will argue that grace here has a much deeper meaning, and that meaning is not unmerited favor, but demerited favor. That is to say, you deserve to be punished. You deserve punishment, but instead, God gives you mercy, kindness, and grace. So the very idea that grace could be consistent with this idea that God helps those who help themselves just on the face of it is absurd. What grace actually is, is when you deserve to be punished, instead, God shows you favor and kindness. And so at the very definition, it is the opposite of doing your best and God making up the rest. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of, okay, after I've done all these things, then God's going to give me grace after all I do. I love the way how one pastor gives us very uh, clear definition of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Demerited favor. God loves you when you are unlovable. He never stops loving you. And so the, this is why Paul says the very concept of grace is such that the, the basis of it is demerited favor and that is incompatible with works. So if I am saved by just one work, just one, if I do anything to contribute to my salvation, then, my, then I fail by Paul's definition of grace. I fail to be saved by grace. You know, there's no compromise in Paul's mind here. You cannot just allow for one little work. Say, oh, let's put, let's put in baptism here. It's okay. Let's put in, as they did in the first century church, let's put in circumcision here. One work compromises salvation by grace alone. So when people say they're saved by, by grace and works, according to Paul's light, uh, definition here, they cannot mean what Paul is saying. They're uttering a contradiction according to Paul. They have radically redefined it to mean something that the Bible never meant for. But so how how radically inconsistent is works with grace? What about works makes them so uh, incompatible, inconsistent 
with the nature of grace. Well, let's look at the Greek word for works. It's ergon. Not from like Lord of the Rings. Every time I see it in Greek, I'm like, Lord of the Rings, you know, but no. Um, Aragon is defined as activity and accomplishment. It is defined as something that requires a deed, something that requires effort and energy, and that's the way how it's defined. I love the way the, the uh, Freeburg lexicon defines it, and I think it's really helpful for thinking here. But they define works, hear this, they define works as the opposite of rest. The opposite of rest. So if I stop preaching, you know, you're like, oh, it's an early sermon. I get to early get lunch. Hey, no, what's going on? Trust me. <laughs> so if I sit down, stop preaching, and uh, I make a choice to like sit down in one of those chairs in the front, I am resting. I was preaching. I'm working right now, but I now am going to a state of rest. I'm leaning back on the chair, whatever it is. If you're working a construction job and you're hammering away, lifting heavy things, you know, getting huge, you know, that kind of thing. You're just, you're working really hard and you finally say, okay, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to rest. You sit down and you lean back on a chair. You are resting. Now you've still made a choice. You've still made an action, but it's a choice to, you know, sit back, lean on something, rest on something and take a break. So resting isn't a work by the very meaning of the word for work here. As it says in Genesis 1, God worked six days and he rested the seventh. By definition, in the seventh day, he stopped creating. He stopped from doing the type of activity he was previously doing. And so it's very interesting as you read throughout the New Testament, there's a fundamental distinction between faith and works, law and gospel, doing and believing, trusting and achieving. There's this fundamental distinction in Paul's thought that is really clear. And you see this very pungently, very clearly in Luke 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we have believed in Christ in order that we be justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ, and not by works of law. So it's distinguishing them here, works and faith. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified by trying and achieving. We can't meet God's standard. So it cannot be that way. It's the opposite of faith. Works are. It's the opposite then. So faith is best viewed as a form of resting but of course, check this out. If I get up on, get off stage and I, you know, take a break from preaching or stop preaching, I go down there and sit in one of those chairs there and I am, I am leaning back on one of those chairs, stopping from working, stopping from preaching and I'm resting in it also. So when I'm leaning, I'm resting. And that is, that is kind of the essence of the Greek word for faith here, pistis, is trusting, resting, leaning, and receiving. It's very interesting. Years ago, there was a missionary named John Patton, and he was um, praying and waiting to go to a group of islands in the South Pacific called the New Hebrides Islands. And uh, yeah, there's no general way to put this. They were cannibals, not, not a place I'd want to be, really. Not a place, it's like, no, I think I'll stay home and watch Netflix. But yeah, there was, can it's, a, it's, a, it's a cannibalistic island here, you know, and he decided through prayer to go there and to preach the gospel. And he was in danger pretty much constantly, as you would expect on an island full of cannibals. Finally, on the island, he got to kind of make some relative peace with these people and started figuring out their language, their culture, and everything. But he had one little problem when he was translating the Bible. In their language, there was no word for trust. There was no word for faith. So he's trying to figure out, okay, how do I translate like faith into their like 
language. How do I do this? You know, I mean, that's pretty much the key to the gospel is faith. So I got to figure out how to translate this word here. So one day he's sitting in his tent, you know, trying to just rack his brain on how to do this. One of the villagers came in and he's sitting on a, on, on a chair and he sits back. I can't do it here, but he leans back on it with his feet up, you know, propped up and he leans back in his chair and he asks the villager, he's like, what am I doing right now? Is he leaning back on, on this chair? The villager said, you are resting or placing your whole weight in his language upon that chair. You're resting and placing your whole weight. So they had a word for that. And so the way he translated John 3, 16 was that God so loved the world that whoever rests his whole weight upon him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so with this gospel message, he finally gets it translated and the new Hebrides islands, they receive the gospel, they repent of their cannibalism and they became a beacon of godliness thanks to this translation and missionary work that John Patton provided. So the, the very idea and concept of the initial act of saving faith in is one of not working, but resting and leaning, putting your weight on. And when you read Paul actually says the one thing that is compatible with grace, the one thing that's, that works with it, that doesn't mess it up, is faith. He says it here very explicitly in Romans 4.16. That is why it, it, it depends on faith. That is why it depends on faith. It must depend on faith. It must. In order that the promise may rest on grace. The only way you're getting grace is through faith. Why? Because faith is the only thing compatible with grace because it is akin, it is like resting. That's the idea. Now, I want to stress this because there are so many movements out there that try to make faith into a work, essentially. That there's no fundamental um, distinction between faith and works. And this is a very common thing in many movements. In the a Federal Vision Joint Statement, this is what they write about faith. It's a movement that denies the uniqueness of faith being a, 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 a just grace. It says... Or I should say, it tries to make faith into a work. This is what they say about faith. In justification, the only kind of faith which God gives, which is to say, a living, active, and personally loyal faith. And so many of them will say, yeah, well, loyal just means faithful. So you are saved then on their view by faithfulness. You are saved on their view by being devoted and by having this super duper strong, active and living faith. So faith is kind of it's, it's, it's taken away from its rest like nature and turned into a work. And so work becomes faith and faith becomes work. There's no distinction between them as Paul does. And you see, the initial act is is just leaning. It's resting on the mercies of Christ. It is not an achievement the way they're trying to make it. And the problem is that when you read scripture, it not only distinguishes distinguishes faith from works, but it talks about faith as, as a mere reception, receiving a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift. That's what it says. You receive a gift. Not a result of works, notice a contrast, so that no one may boast. So receiving a gift is not a work. It's not an accomplishment. I'm 
are. I mean, what this movement is trying to do is make that act, that just the receiving of a gift, they're trying to make it look really active and powerful. Like, I don't know, like it's hard or something to open a gift. I don't know what that, you know, it's like, and maybe if, if, the gra if there's a lot of gravity, you can't lift your arm up or something, or you got something going on with you. I, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I mean, could you imagine like you're a kid on Christmas and you're like running down the stairs, you're all excited like I was. Like, I never did this. Um, I, well, I ran down the stairs on Christmas, but, but imagine if you did something weird like this. I've never done something like this, but imagine like as you're opening up those presents on Christmas morning, you're like, you, you, you know, your dad or your mom gives you a gift. You're like, oh, I'm so strong receiving this gift. Look at this. So amazing. So virtuous, active and living. Me receiving this gift. I am so amazing. My faith is kind of a big deal. Oh, wow. As you're unwrapping the present, you're like, so loyal as you're tearing down it. So obedient. So faithful as, un as you're unwrapping the present. Your parents be like, is something wrong with you? I think you're struggling with narcissism right now. And you're like, like, I gave you a gift, you know? I mean, when I got a gift, I got Legend of Zelda when I was like, I don't know, 10, 11. And I just ran around screaming, right? I wasn't like, oh, I'm using my arm right now to grab the present. Oh, I'm so active and amazing. Look at my obedient faith. It's so terrific. It's so amazing. Like, no one does that. Because when you receive a gift, you don't even think about receiving. It's like after the fact. It's, it's the fact you got a gift, right? And how amazing, like, how, how amazing it is. The focus is not on the reception. The focus is on the gift, especially when you talk to children. Children bear that out on Christmas uh, morning. So this kind of redefining uh, of grace doesn't make any sense. Um, and it's like redefining, uh, like being friendly or kind to torturing people. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I, we kind of made jokes about this about uh, two Sundays ago about, you know, a, a kid who goes to, you know, teenagers do this. They go to like the soda machines and they, and they put every part of the soda in their cup. And so you can't taste the Sprite anymore. It's all like in this, you know, soda sugar glop. And that's what happens. You make, make faith and works as you destroy the very nature of the gospel. You destroy the very nature of rest and the good news of the gospel because the gospel is all about spiritual rest. Taking a heavy weight that's on your shoulders and taking it off. It's all about when coming to Jesus, when we go to him by faith, it's all about not adding on more weights to show how great it is that we're coming to Jesus. Wow, look at these steps. So amazing. No, no, it's about Jesus's work, not our reception or us coming to him. We see this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, those who are stacked with all sorts of things on their shoulders, pain, burdens, and I will give you rest. That's what it is. Salvation is spiritual rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. See the emphasis on rest here. It is resting. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the focus is on the gift of what Jesus has given us, not on the act of reception, not on the act of coming to Jesus. So that is why when you come to Jesus by faith, it is not a matter of work. It is a matter of rest. It is a Sabbath, if you will. It is a Sabbath for your soul. Before you come to Jesus, you are trying to justify yourself, working and laboring and achieving finally, so that you can be worthy enough. And when you come to Jesus, you take that heavy, burdensome weight off your shoulders. You come to Jesus and you receive rest forever and ever. You don't have to be worthy anymore. The whole point is that Jesus was worthy for you. This is why Jesus provides true and lasting rest for your souls. So, 
as you can see, salvation is by grace and faith alone. There's nothing you can do to save yourself at all. You have to rest and receive it as a gift. So many people say, okay, well, if it's a bunch of spiritual rest, I guess I can just be kind of lazy, you know? You know, I don't have to work anymore. So, you know, time to bring out the marshmallow, so the donuts, and the Netflix, and just chillax. You know, I don't have to do anything anymore. There's no working in my life, you know? Being a Christian means I get, I get my Oprah in and my daytime television in. It's just a big siesta. That's what it is. But that is not at all what the Bible teaches. When you have rest for your souls, that is fertile ground for good works, for transformation. It is not, these good works are not the basis for grace. They are the result of grace. So that grace and works are different. Works cannot be the basis for, for uh, grace, but works result from grace. This is what it says. I'm going to read the whole part of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 to see how this works together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in Paul's mind, there is no conflict between grace and works, provided that works are not the basis for grace, but that merely, and this is so important, merely that works results from grace. Now, but people say, well, why would this gracious salvation, this eternal life, this forgiveness right now, why would this produce good works in somebody's life. Why? I mean, you know, I mean, doesn't grace make people, you know, worse and not better? You know, makes you want to just slack off? Well, let me ask you something. If you don't go to sleep, what happens to your body? It breaks down. You get sick a lot easier. Actually, they've, they've done this. Um, they, I think the longest guy had, I think it was like 10 days without sleeping. It's like the world record for that. Guy started seeing hallucinations. Guy, he didn't get sleep, so he actually began to lose his mind. So yeah, if you don't get, if you don't get sleep and you don't get rest, you, your work life does not get better. It gets much worse. Very bad for you. It's funny, uh, this week, um, Kenny and Abigail, conveniently, woke me up at 4 a.m. in the morning, Wednesday mor uh, Tuesday morning, or I guess it's Wednesday morning, that's right, it's the next day. And I got like less than four hours of sleep this week, and I have to tell you, I had a terrible work week. I didn't do anything that day. You know, I just like, I couldn't even focus. I got nothing done. And when I went to small group, I was all loopy and tired. I couldn't even do my job because I was so tired, you know? So even a not, a, not enough rest can affect how much or how well you work. And uh, one of my earliest mistakes I made going into ministry was not giving myself any rest or Sabbath. Now, if any of you have texted me on Monday, and I'm sure there are people here that have done that, and it's okay. I have an automatic uh, messaging system. If you text me and it says, hey, I'm resting today, spending time with my family. Get back to you on Tuesday. Go bother Johnny. <laughs> no, don't bother, don't bother him. It's a joke. Sorry. It's a little inappropriate thing. <laughs> well, this is serious behind every joke, right? So, you know, and so what I would do before the before I did this, I've been encouraged by Johnny and my wife, you know, to, to rest, uh, to get rest. My quality of work was really bad. Like, people would call me, and I'd be like snappy and neurotic and weird, and because I didn't rest, and like I, I just would feel so burned out, like I didn't want to preach or anything. 
because I was not resting. Now, thank God I take Mondays off and I'm thankful for people encouraging me to do this. But the point is, is that resting provides healing too. You can't, you can't, if you don't heal, you don't recover. And if you can't recover spiritually, you know, mentally, emotionally, you can't work well at all. Resting is so important. And so the gospel then provides this just tremendous rest for our souls so that we can heal, we can recover and focus not on our, how, how, how tired and exhausted we are, but we're, how, how we can be focused on serving God. Spiritual rest is so good for spiritual healing. Rest in Christ brings this, this just transformative forgiveness and healing that just changes our lives. In the book, uh, Confess Your Sins, John Stout quotes a, a mental health professional who admitted, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Half the patients and the gospel gives us this rest, this forgiveness, which then in turn produces healing and allows us to have a way forward in our lives. Without forgiveness and grace, there is no way forward. It's just, it's just terrible sadness and despair. And we try to numb ourselves with alcohol and Netflix and all of these things. And so people who say the gospel of God's amazing grace produces immorality, they don't understand the deep, profound, spiritual rest that the gospel gives, it, gives them. I'll ask you a question, okay? Who's going to have a better job working a construction job? A person who uh, has two broken legs or a person who has just completely healed after having two broken legs? You don't even need to answer that. You know which one's going to, the one who has healed, the one who has rested. And so the gospel of justification and faith, uh, justification and uh, forgiveness by faith alone is not only a truth that makes us right before a holy, perfect and just God, but it is actually a truth that relieves our conscience takes the focus off of us and our strivings and focuses our attention on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, puts, takes the attention off of us, puts it on Jesus, and then as a result, we are, we are thankful to Jesus, we want to be more like Jesus, we have deep healing, and then we produce a lot more good works as Christians. So if you are tired, exhausted, beat down, and you are looking for true and lasting spiritual rest for your souls, then come to Jesus. He is gentle. He is kind and forgiving. And His kindness will heal and forgive your soul forever and ever. And so please receive His love and grace and mercy this morning by faith alone. Let's pray.